Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about omnipotence. Omnipotence. From the Greek, all power. Omnipotence. Very recently, I was contacted by people affiliated with Thomas J. Ord. And since I read his book and I reviewed his book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, they asked me to write an article in collaboration with the ideas of that book, the ideas of Thomas J. Ord. And for those who do not know who Thomas J. Ord is or his theology, he I would classify on the far left end of the spectrum when it comes to biblical versus philosophical open theism. He is a dyed-and-wool philosophical open theist, so much so that he'll go through the Bible and he'll grab out ideas, grab out concepts that fit his beliefs, and he'll accept them. And if he's given counter evidence, he, he'll say something like, you know, that that's just uh, not useful for what we're trying to describe here. So his, his idea is his philosophy kind of overrides the Bible, and the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us literal truth. This approach to the Bible definitely frustrates those who want a more literal approach to the Bible. And there's people who've had interactions with Ord who they, they've just given up in futility by not being able to be even on the same page. And and, and that's fine. Uh, different people could come to open theism through different perspectives, through different beliefs. Different people can treat the Bible differently, but you just got to know who you're talking to and in what capacity they think the Bible is useful. You have to understand how they use the Bible and in what sense, or else you're going to be talking cross-purposes. You're not even going to be speaking to each other in a mutually beneficial way. So Ord is famous in open theism and outside of open theism because he denies that God can act in a unilateral fashion when it comes to human agents. People have free will, and this free will, coupled with God's love nature, means that God cannot act, God cannot act in, in opposition to man's free will because that would be unloving, that would be against his character. So associates of Ord's, they contact me because I wrote a review of his book which, in which he describes this entire philosophy. And they asked me to write an article, a blog post, that is in dialogue with the ideas in Ord's book. So I looked at this opportunity, and it was a great opportunity. It was a great opportunity to write about something that I want to write about for a long time anyways. And it's these problem passages in the Bible. Problem passages like the Chariots of Iron. There's an entire atheist site called Chariots of Iron because of one single verse in Judges. Let's read that real quick. Judges 1.19 And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Hmm, that sounds kind of odd. So the Lord's with Judah during the victories. But then what? Does God abandon Judah? And Judah's Israel. And Israel is given the promised land. And they're fighting all these pagan nations. And they're just not able to drive out these certain inhabitants because, because the text says, they have chariots of iron. What is going on in this text? Almost a face value reading of this text kind of gives the reader the impression that God is defeated by chariots. God is defeated by chariots. Hence, my original title for this article before the editor suggested something more, more clickable, more intriguing.
My original title was The Apparent Lack of Omnipotence in the Bible. I'm fine with the new title. I could defend the new title. And uh, there's people who misinterpret what I say because of this title. But, you know, that's fine. But my original title was supposed to be The Apparent Lack of Omnipotence in the Bible. Talking about these passages, talking about God's defeats, and passages which kind of indicate that God's empowered people failed. Why is that? Why do we see that happening in the Bible? My second example in the article was the incident with Moab. If we recall in the Bible, there was a famous Moabite named Ruth. An entire book of the Bible is about this Moabite. But the Moabites was a people that were often on in warfare and peace with Israel. And at the time of 2 Kings 3, and this is where the passage is found, Moab is under the control of Israel. And after Ahab dies, the Moabites rebel. Elisha is prophet at this time, and he calls for a musician. The musician plays some music, and then Elisha starts prophesying. And he says in his prophecy, This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city, every choice city, and shall fell every good tree, and stop up all springs of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. You know, when you took over an enemy land, you would sometimes just destroy their fields, so they can't replant their crops and reestablish their cities. And that's a way to just kind of decimate a nation so it doesn't rise up again. And so God is promising, if, if you're the king, and you're hearing this prophecy, you understand that you're given a complete victory. You're going to go out and you're going to win. And the Moabites are as good as done. This prophecy is accompanied with a miracle. Miraculous water it springs from the ground or springs from somewhere. And that just reinforces the power of this prophecy. The idea that this prophecy is a true prophecy of God. Israel starts out pretty good. They enter the land of the Moabites and they just start overthrowing cities. They overthrow land. They destroy crops and fields. And this is what 2 Kings 3.26 reads. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel. And they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. So watch what happens here. There's this prophecy that Israel is going to take over all of Moab. They're going to subjugate it. They're going to make sure it never rises again. And what happens? They get to where the king is. You know, they're, they're doing pretty good. They're overthrowing cities. They're taking cities. But they get to the main city where the king is. And the king sacrifices his own son to their God. And then the text says, there came a great wrath against Israel. And then Israel is routed. Their army is routed and they have to return to their own land. I would really, really be interested in a Calvinist explaining what's going on here. Talking about the dynamics of the text and this failed prophecy to try to salvage it. There was uh, one commenter on the article who tried to salvage it. They said, look, they did go into the land. They did overthrow cities. They did destroy fields. That's, that's not the prophecy. That is not the prophecy. It said that they're going to overthrow all their fields. It says it's gonna, they're going to overthrow all their cities. 
It's basically a prophecy of complete domination of Moab, something that did not happen. And the Moabites resurged throughout history. They even helped King Nebuchadnezzar against Israel in the future. This prophecy is a legit failed prophecy in the text. The text does not describe fulfillment of in the same context, in the same chapter. How do Calvinists explain this? God controls everything and God has failed prophecies in the mind of a Calvinist. How do they explain it? I would, I would love to hear. If someone has any links to any talks or anything like that, I'd love to hear it. I really would. It's sections of the Bible like this which make me believe the Bible is describing actual history. Because in spite of what the prophet says, in spite of Israel looking good, they are recording events that make prophecies fail and don't look very good on Israel. Yeah, they, they, they're not propping themselves up. What is, what is their motivation to describe this event? It's because that's how the event happened. What gets me are these people who try to salvage these prophecies, and they think that God just speaks incredibly cryptically. Like, God will say something, God will give a prophecy, and even though the general gist of the prophecy says one thing, it makes people believe one thing, the, the prophecy is just fulfilled through some weird technicality of languages. And it reminds me of the Oracles of Delphi. And the Oracles of Delphi would give purposely cryptic prophecies. And that way, no matter what happened, no matter what happened, they could always say that the prophecy was fulfilled. Oh, if you go to battle, and they're talking to the king, this is the Oracle of Delphi. If you go to battle, a great nation will fall. And then the king goes to battle, and then his great nation falls. He thinks he's going to win, but the oracle apparently, ex post facto, is interpreted to mean that his kingdom's going to fall. Brilliant. That's a very useful prophecy, and, you know, that's not how biblical prophecy works. Biblical prophecy is God is saying something, and it should be taken in some sort of straightforward manner. God's not just toying with people and trying to get off on technicalities in his prophecies. That's not how it works. There was a person on God is Open a while back, and he just insisted that every time God speaks, that has to happen. And so I brought up the prophecy of Nineveh. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That did not happen. That did not happen. And he said, oh no, it was overthrown. It was overthrown spiritually because they repented and they changed. Like, what are you talking about, dude? You turn to the end of Jonah. And the text literally, literally says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God is saying something, and that something does not happen, as admitted in the text. Yeah, so sometimes God does talk, and then whatever God says, it doesn't happen. And this is described in Jeremiah 18, the general rule. He says, if a nation changes, then I will change what I thought I'd do and what I said I would do. And this is standard fare. So when people try to salvage it and they say, oh no, uh, Nineveh actually was overthrown and God's prophecy did come true. It just wasn't, it didn't come true in the way like, like the listeners of the prophecy, how they thought. But it did come true. And that's not supported by the text. That's not supported by common sense. And it's just people just trying to force things into the text because of their presuppositions. I don't buy it. Unlike the Jonah text, the Moabite text doesn't have a reason for God 
changing or God withdrawing his prophecy. Instead, instead what it reads is there is a counteraction and then Israel flees. God prophesies, the people are emboldened, the people attack, something happens, and then the people flee. Michael Heiser actually talks about this situation in his book, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible. And this is a great book. Everyone should go buy it. It's on Kindle for like $3. So it's a good investment and buy it, read it. It talks about all sorts of problem texts, interesting texts. Texts are normally just skipped by modern Christians because Christians can't deal with the text of the Bible. But here's what he says about this incident. He doesn't deny that the prophecy failed. He doesn't do that. Instead, he writes, Elisha has told the kings of Israel and Judah that God would help them. So why had he not? This situation isn't the first time God promises but chooses not to deliver. God had told the Israelites they would conquer Canaan under Moses and Joshua, yet they failed because of unbelief. And he quotes all the references. Yahweh was not defeated by the God of Moab, He was and is ready and able to help his people, but he will not do so if they refuse to believe and act on their behalf. And that makes sense. Israel decides to turn and flee and run away, and God, if he wanted to fulfill this prophecy, what would he have to do? He'd have to just like strike dead all the Moabites as Israel's running away. Rather than say, you guys are just going to run away even though I've empowered you, even though you're taking over all of Moab as we speak, even though you have the superior advantage here, you're just going to turn and run? Okay, I'm just going to let you guys turn and run. You guys could be defeated for not putting your faith in me. That sounds like a pretty legitimate understanding of what's going on in this text. God is not a slave to his prophecy. God doesn't... Yeah. Michael Heiser, he's not an open theist, but he speaks like an open theist. I think he he kind of has open theist inclinations. I just think he doesn't want to take the leap because that would put him a farther radicalized in Christian perspectives because he's already considered a radical, and this will just further that. So, But he speaks like open theist. God is giving prophecies that God knows will not come true. That's what you have to believe, to believe in traditional omniscience of future events, and to also maintain that this prophecy failed. The more natural reading is the author of this text, they didn't even have in their perspective that God knows all future events. They don't write as if God has total omniscience of the future. None of the biblical authors were classical theists. They were all open theists. But anyways, my article... God is not all-powerful, and the Bible tells us so. That's its thesis, that God can work collaboratively. And then when his agents fail, God doesn't necessarily follow up to make sure that his plans and goals succeed. I'm saying that's a possibility for understanding a lot of these weird texts in the Bible. So what do the commenters assume? That I think God is incapable of defeating chariots okay you might be misreading you might need to read the article again maybe not once maybe not twice maybe three times you need to reread the article because that's not said anywhere in the text of the article this is basically the worst problem ever to have online when people are trying to debate you for points that you never made and they don't say where they got the idea that you made those points anywhere 
They don't walk through their steps of logic in determining it. No, they just assume they know what you believe, and they, they misrepresent you. They can't even defend why they think you think what they claim that you think. Maybe that's not the worst problem to have online, but, you know, it is kind of incredibly annoying. That's why I ask people, what do I believe about this? What do I believe about that? And that forces them to get out of their state of mind, get out of their talking points, and just try to recreate factually what I believe. There's a right and wrong answer for them telling me what I believe. There's a right and wrong answer, and it could be easily confirmed. The same commenter, they said, oh, your title says explicitly that God is not all-powerful. Well, I, I didn't make my own title, but let's go there. Let's talk about this, this concept of all-power. Omnipotence is not a biblical concept. It's not a biblical idea. The biblical concept is that God is uber-powerful, or God is almighty. Almighty is used of God throughout the Bible, and often in place of God's own name. And there's a lot of treatises, there's a lot of narrative that talks about God's ability to accomplish, God's ability to do things, God's ability to overcome all odds. God is very, very powerful. You don't find these rants by classical theists where they talk about, oh, God can do anything but the logically impossible. If you could draw it out in a cartoon doing it, then God can do it. No, 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 there's nothing like that in the Bible. The Jewish idea, Jewish theology, does not care about these negative classifications. They do not care about theology which tries to force God into these alls or nothings. God's everywhere or nowhere. God has all strength or no strength. Nothing like that. Jewish theology doesn't care about it. It's not part of their conceptual repertoire. They can't draw on this theology because it just did not exist. In that sense, yes, omnipotence is not a biblical concept. The biblical writers didn't know about this concept. They didn't incorporate it into their theology. They didn't care about it. It's not biblical. That doesn't mean it's not like true. God could be omnipotent and then the Jewish authors of the Bible just didn't know or care or think it was important enough. That could be the case, but just trying to impose it on the Bible, using it as a prior presupposition, that's that's a terrible way to do theology. I'm going to quote the ever-quotable Walter Brueggemann. Israel's characteristic adjectival vocabulary about Yahweh is completely lacking in terms that have dominated classical theology such as omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, this sharp contrast suggests that classical theology, insofar as it is dominated by such interpretive categories and concerns, is engaged in issues that are not crucial for Israel's testimony about Yahweh and are, in fact, quite remote from Israel's primary utterance. When people try to criticize someone for not believing in omnipotence or omnipresence or omniscience, They're not engaged in biblical theology. They might be engaged in Christian theology, broadly defined, but not biblical theology because the Bible's not about those topics. The Bible doesn't care about those topics. They're not defined in the Bible anywhere. If these topics were crucial, you would expect 
very detailed explanations of what these concepts are, how they interact with our understanding of God. You don't you don't find that in the Bible. It's not biblical theology. Doesn't mean it's not true. It could still be true, but criticizing someone as not being biblical for not latching on to these terms, these all or nothing, these negative attributes, that's not engaging in biblical theology. In some English Bibles, you might come across the word omnipotent, and that would often occur in the book of Revelation. I believe the New King James only has it once, and this is a translation from Pantocrator, meaning all ruler. And let's recall what the book of Revelation is about. It's about God returning to earth, restoring justice, restoring rule, restoring righteousness, and doing so through violent means through an army that purges the wicked. And that's what all ruler actually means, that God is king, and God is powerful, and God's going to reclaim dominion on the earth. And that's that's the story of Revelation. So the, so John, the author of Revelation, he didn't have these weird negative ideas when he's using this Greek word. He just doesn't. And it's a poor translation to translate it as omnipotent, rather than the more natural translation, almighty. I explained to the commenter, the commenter on my post, yeah, the idea of omnipotence, the obsession with it that you find in Christianity, is not a biblical obsession. It's it's Greek thought, it's Greek pagan concepts, it's Greek concerns. It's not Hebrew concerns, it's not biblical theology. So in that sense, in that sense, yeah, the title is good. God is not all-powerful, and the Bible tells us so. Especially in light of people rebelling against God. Individual actors going against God's will, opposing God, and God's prophecies not coming true. They have to be explained somehow. God is not controlling all things. God does not hoard all power to himself, especially if his will is being so what is a more biblical view of how God operates with the earth if he's not hoarding all power to himself? And I talk about this in the article, and I do so through a few quotes from Ord, in which Ord proposes that God acts not unilaterally, but synergistically with human beings. I know Calvinists hate the word synergistic. And they want monergism. Only God does anything and mankind cannot act without God. Absolute nonsense. That's not what the Bible is about. You don't find that in the Bible. That's just what they like to make up and impose on the text. Instead, instead, what you see in the Bible is God is always working with people and through people. God is empowering. God wants to save Israel, but Moses is the doer. God sends Moses. God's going to be liberating, but Moses is going to go and do. God's in the courtroom asking angels for ideas about how to get King Ahab killed. They all throw out ideas. They crowdsource ideas. They brainstorm ideas. God picks one. Then he tells the angel, you, you go out and do. God is the king. God is the sovereign. And God works through agents, empowering these agents. The Satan character that we see throughout the Old Testament often is working in conjunction with God. God wants to reach the false 
prophet Balaam, the Satan, which just is a general word for adversary, opposes Balaam and delivers God's message to Balaam for Balaam to prophesy on behalf of God. God has agents. God works through agents. So the question that my article asks is what happens when God's agents fail? Does God always step in and right the wrong and force his will to happen or force his prophecy to occur? And I propose, I propose in this article, no, he doesn't. And with that in mind, if we incorporate that into our theology, that makes sense of so many passages throughout the Bible. It just makes sense that that's why some prophecies, they fail. King Nebuchadnezzar was prophesied to take Tyre. Instead, instead of what happened was all his men went bald and they failed to take the city. The text doesn't give a reason. The text doesn't give a reason. We started this podcast talking about judges in which chariots of iron thwart God's people. God is with them when they're winning all these battles, but then they encounter chariots of iron. So in the context, in the very next chapter, we come across the interesting passage. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. So from this very next chapter in Judges, in context, we see this playing out. God had promised to drive out nations, but then decides against it when they fail God. When God's chosen people rebels against him, doesn't have faith in him, they don't do what he wanted them to do, he changes his mind and decides to revoke this promise, to revoke this prophecy, and not enable them. And he's going to use this, leaving the pagan nations, and this is interesting because God's using these people to test Israel, to figure out whether they're going to keep his ways, or not. It's a test. And it's a test to get information. It's God acquiring information. So, good text all around. It explains the judges one passage. Possibly, possibly explains it. It possibly tells us why God was not with Israel against the chariots. It could be. The text isn't explicit. The text has no indication of the reason why Israel failed. But in the context, in the very next chapter, God revokes his protection of Israel because they have rejected God. That could be our answer. I might be jumping around a little, but uh, let's go back to Moses. God sends Moses. God is the enabler. Moses is the agent. And I'm going to read a quote again from Walter Brueggemann about that. The series of first-person verbs, and this is in the narrative of God interacting with Moses to send him to Egypt. The series of first-person verbs indicating Yahweh's resolve, intention, and action is powerful and impressive. I know. I have come down to deliver and to bring up. I have seen. Yahweh is filled with self-assertiveness. Given that, the narrative takes an abrupt and odd turn at verse 10. So I will send you to Pharaoh and bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Yahweh still has one active verb, I will send, 
But it is Moses who will go. It is Moses who runs the risks, who will be the point man with Pharaoh. It is legitimate to say with Austin Farr, the Hebrew commonly saw divine events as having creaturely agents. We notice that Yahweh's mighty acts, as attested in Israel's core testimony, are considerably changed by the centrality of the human agent and actor, in this case Moses. To be sure, Yahweh is fully present in full power, as Yahweh had promised. I will be with you. Yahweh's commitment and engagement are complete, but now they are mediated. Whereas the great verbs of Exodus 3, 7-9 bespeak Yahweh's direct intervention, in verse 10 it is, I will send you. Yahweh is engaged, but not without human agency. This is literally the story of the Bible. We could pull out example after example of God using human agents, God using angelic agents, God using agency to, to go out and perform his miracles, perform his works. God is the king, and God uses intermediators to affect his will on earth. This idea so prevalent in the Bible is very counter to ideas of Calvinism in which God controls and regulates all things and God is a meticulous control freak. No, sometimes these agents fail and God doesn't right the wrongs and prophecies fail as a result. We need to note two things about these prophecies. First, these prophecies are still included in the Bible. The authors of the Bible they didn't have this uh, revulsion to failed prophecy that the modern Christians have, and they often put it in the Bible without explanation of why prophecies fail. That needs to tell us something. That needs to inform our views on the mindset, the theology of the ancient writers of the Bible. The second thing is these types of failed prophecies only work in the context of open theism. If God foreknew all of the future and he foreknew that his agents would fail and he wouldn't even follow up on that wrong and then God makes a prophecy how is that not like a lie God knows that in no way would that prophecy be fulfilled and he still gives it and his agents fail only open theism has an answer for this type of problem so if anyone were to get two things from this podcast today, number one is that the Hebrew mindset was not obsessed with Greek categories. They're not obsessed with negative theology, theology which tries to classify God as having all power or being nowhere or these, these extreme negative theologies. That's not the Hebrew theology. That's not the Hebrew mindset. They didn't even have that available as an option on which to draw. The second thing is that God works through agents throughout the Bible. God continually works through agents. He works through Moses. He works through King Nebuchadnezzar. He works through Israel to attack the Moabites. He works through agents. He often uses angels to accomplish his will. God works through agents. And sometimes those agents fail. They fail God. And often God just lets that failure stand. That's that's what we see in the Bible. That explains all these odd passages. We are about out of time. If you have questions or comments on today's podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on our Facebook companion page, God is Open. Thank you for listening.